Approximately about a year ago, I spoke to you on our walk with Christ based on the biblical references to our daily walk as Christians. And specifically, we investigated the term walked with God describing prominent figures in the Old Testament. And at the completion of that introductory, I indicated that I'd be starting a series of lessons based on a believer's walk with Christ. And that was really based on a book here that I had read from John MacArthur. And, uh, but uh, as we all know, God had other plans for me last year, so that didn't happen. But uh, uh, before I start, let me, let me just uh, uh, open with a quick word of prayer. Our God and Heavenly Father, Lord, I just ask that you would just guide us today, Lord. Guide my words, guide the hearts here of all, Lord. Might my words be pure and maybe your words, Lord, but might they also be words that can impact the hearts of the hearers, Lord. We just ask you to guide us through this night and ask your blessings in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> today I want to share with you the first in that series. It's called Walking Worthy of the Gospel. But first, what I'd like to do is provide you just a brief summary of that original presentation just to set the stage, the foundation of what we're going to be talking about. And uh, our, we're going to be talking about our walk as followers of Jesus. Um, and I, I hopefully you guys can see uh, that the print's not too small there, but the, hopefully when I put up here, you can see that though, but. Our walk as followers Jesus, the purpose of our Christian walk is Christ's likeness. It's to be consistent with our being created in the image of God. We see that in Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created him male and female created he them. That's a verse some of our politicians probably uh, skipped over, I think, but that's not one altogether. But being consistent with um, being created in the image of God also means abstaining from that which is contrary to the attributes of God. It also means that we will be fulfilling our identity in Christ, being transformed in Christ's likeness. And we know that from Romans 12, 2, where it reads, And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is good, and acceptable and perfect will of God. And last but not least, ultimately all of that is for the glory of God. Psalm 86, 12, I will praise thee, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify thy name forever. During that discussion, we talked about a path, and our walk is a path, and all paths have a place that's a start, there's a path we follow, and then there's an end point. And our Christian walk is composed of a starting place, which is our justification. That's that moment we were saved. The path is the, sanct the progressive sanctification that we experience. And that end point is glorification. Now, to avoid any confusion, I, I, I want to make sure you understand. Justification, reconciliation, Redemption, sanctification, adoption, salvation, glorification, all positionally happened at the moment we were saved. However, practically, 
from our human perspective, they occur sequentially. And that's what we're talking about here from a human perspective relative to uh, our sanctification, because we're going to be talking about our walk along that path. <clears throat> What's the power of our walk with the gospel? How is it that we're able to do that? And it, we're dependent upon the righteousness of Christ for our acceptance with God and upon the power of Christ for our ability to pursue our spiritual growth. And that's a quote from Gary Bridges of the Navigators. So we would say, well, Jesus, what is that gospel that we're talking about? Right? You may remember we talked about this a couple weeks, well, more than a couple weeks, a couple months ago, and the gospel, right? We talked about what is the gospel. And remember, there were five key things. There is a creator, God, to whom we're accountable. We rebelled against that God by sitting and are deserving of eternal judgment in hell. Yet God provided a solution to our sin through the sacrificial death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. And we then must believe in Jesus Christ, repent of our sins, and will be saved from the consequences of our sin and accepted by God. That's the gospel. But by the, having the gospel, it, by the gospel being that starting place, it will also allow God to conform us into the image of his Son through the Holy Spirit. I use this slide that you see here, and hopefully you guys can I'll read it for you. I like it a lot. It's a, it's a quote by a fellow named Man Lee, Man He Lee, and it says, We must know what it means to carry out the life of faith and what it means to be people who walk on the path of God's word and teaching. So to begin today's lesson, or message, I'd like to just ask you a couple questions to think about. When someone joins an organization, what are the expectations and obligations that there are? Richard, I'm sure when you joined the Navy, they had some expectations and obligations, right? For those folks who might work at the mill there, right, there's some expectations, like you'll show up on time, you'll work hard, you'll wear your safety equipment, right? <clears throat> when we are part of a membership or join an organization, we are to live and act in accordance with the standards of that group. We're to accept its aims, what it's trying to accomplish, and its objectives. We all tr really want to belong. People want to belong. And when they're a part of a group, they don't want to get ostracized from the group by not conforming to those standards. We tend to toe the line. We can see some biblical examples of that in the life of, during the life of Jesus. We know the story about the parents of the blind man who feared being thrown out of the synagogue when the Pharisees asked them. Right? They were a part of that, the synagogue. You know, they were able, as Jews, to worship. They knew Jesus had cured their son who couldn't see for birth, right? And yet when they were asked, they said, we don't know. 
They didn't want to be ostracized. They didn't want to. We also can see the one where the, uh, that story I just told you is in John 9. We can see in John 12 the religious leaders who it says actually believed that Jesus was the anointed one, yet didn't say anything because they were afraid that they would be thrown out of the synagogue. So let's think about something. As members, our membership as followers of Jesus, right? I want you to, in your mind to think, what are the expectations and the obligations associated with that? And as you've got that picture in your mind, I want to ask you another one to think about. How would you describe the church in general, I'm not talking about new life, the church in general, Overall adherence to the expectations and the obligations of being a follower of Jesus. Let's look at some quotes from a prominent uh, Christian leader, John MacArthur, and I, I took this from his book. But he said this, Yet in the church today, such loyalties to standards and fear of ostracization do not operate with the same force. Too many Christians are glad to have the spiritual security, the blessings, and the promises of the gospel, but have little sense of responsibility in conforming to its standards and obeying its commands. Think about that. That's very true when we look around. Right? You might remember my earlier presentation on the gospel and my concern about the common evangelistic approaches of not including what we consider the bad news of the gospel, right? That we're sinners and we're condemned, right? I believe that this has given a false sense of security and an inaccurate perception of the life of a Christian. It's encouraged a somewhat self-centered approach to one's walk with God. A good example of that, and it, to be honest, drives me crazy when I hear this, when the people will say something, Jesus loves you just the way you are. That's true, but once you've been saved, he doesn't expect you to stay just as you are. Right? I shared with you, and I won't name the name, but there's a church here that says, come however you want to identify. Locally here. Really? <clears throat> Let's look at another quote by MacArthur. When we received Christ as Savior, we became citizens of his kingdom and members of his family. Along with those blessings and privileges, we also received obligations. The Lord expects us to act like the new person or the new creation we've become in Jesus Christ. God expects conformity within the church, the body of Christ. It's not a forced legalistic conformity to external rules and regulations, but a willing inner conformity to the holiness the love and the will of our Heavenly Father who wants His children to honor Him as their Father. Too often in churches we see the extremes of either legalism or license. 
Much of, but when we think of that, those need to be in balance in a true Christian's uh, life. Adherence to behavioral rules without a true relationship with Christ is not salvation. A professed relationship with Christ without obedience to him isn't salvation either. Paul in Philippians 1.27 said, Conduct yourself worthy of the gospel of Christ. What he's talking about is, is that we keep in mind those elements of what that gospel is. Who is God? Who are we? What did he do for us? Right? Well, actually, back up. What, what was our penalty? If we, what did he do for us with regards to it? We need to recognize who God is, recognize who we are relative to him, what we deserve, and what Christ has done for us. You may have heard me say this, and you, and you may have heard others say it. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. Knowing that, how shall we conduct ourselves to live our lives that glorify God? As believers, we need to continually keep the realization that we were called out by the gospel to follow Jesus. Let's dig a little deeper into those expectations and obligations. And I have to tell you, my dry mouth is coming back, so let me get a drink here. Okay. Today's text right, is found in Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. And it begins, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. Now let me just stop a second. The word therefore, I have a good friend who says this all the time. Whenever you see the word therefore, you got to ask yourself, what's it there for? Right? And the word therefore is a transition. And like most of Paul's letters, he starts with doctrine. So the first three chapters in Ephesians are all doctrinal. This is now that transition of taking that doctrine, and now he's going to talk about the application in our lives. <clears throat> the last three chapters in Ephesians are application. Paul follows that pretty much in all of his uh, epistles where he starts first with doctrine, then application. And it makes sense because right doctrine, or right, excuse me, right practice must always be based on right doctrine. Right doctrine is essential, essential for our right living. So let's read the verse now. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherein ye are called. If you have a translation other than the King James, it's going to say that you walk worthy of the calling for which you were called. With all lowliness and meekness and with long-suffering, forbearing one another, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is but one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, 
and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. This week, we're going to be looking at walking worthy of the gospel. And we see that in today's text when it's referred to your vocation. If you look at the, uh, as I said, the others, the word is calling. And I understand why they use, use that, because today when you think of a vocation, you think, okay, I'm going to get paid some money to go work, and that's my career and my job. And a calling has the sense that God has pulled, to, taken me and called me to go do that. <clears throat> when we say a calling, what we mean here is it, re, it, it means that we refer to that moment of our justification, our heeding to the call of the gospel message to become a follower of Jesus Christ. It means that we're gospel-minded, realizing what God has done for us and acting accordingly. This is not the only place in the Bible where we're told to walk worthy, but it is going to be our text for today, but you can also find that in Colossians 1.10. And also 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians 2.12. Colossians reads that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in knowledge of God. 1 Thessalonians was that ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. <clears throat> so, Our text today, we're going to look at it this way, walking worthy of the gospel. We're going to first look at the call to a worthy walk, and that's going to be found in verse 1. We're going to look at the characteristics of a worthy walk, and you can kind of think of this as those obligations and expectations. And then the cause of our worthy walk, and that's going to be in verses 4 through 6, and I I don't go too long, we'll cover that. But if I go too long, we may have to stop before that. But hopefully we can get it all in. These are going to be our three main areas. So, the call. One slide forward, thank you. <laughs> right. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of your vocation wherein you were called. Why do you think Paul used his current circumstances as a prisoner to begin this discussion on the believer's walk with God. What is it about a prisoner, right? Think of Paul. He wrote this from prison. Following Christ was very costly for him, was it not? He's going to ask these Ephesians to do some things that probably are going to be costly for them in that culture. So he's using that as a, himself as an as example for them to see that. The other thing about being a prisoner is, is to, be, to be a prisoner and be successful, you're going to be su submissive. If you're going to be a rascal there, they're going to make your life miserable. Right? And if you're a prisoner or a slave of, of some sort, with that thing, you're going to be submissive in it. You need... You need to rely on something other than yourself that's more powerful for you to be able to be successful in that environment. How might that relate to our walk? 
Well, if you think about it, if I use myself even, I can admit I can be pretty self-oriented. Can't you? We see things in relations to ourselves, and we prefer ease and comfort, and we don't like things to be too costly, do we? And yet, a person submissive to God, or a prisoner, if you would, tries to see everything through what pleases and honors God and his or her master, despite the cost. They're submissive. Now let's look at some interesting definitions of the words here. You guys know I like to do that, okay? Um, but let's look through the word beseech, right? And you'll see in some other translations, it's, it's implore or urge. And I understand why they do that because I don't think too many of us they go, hey, I beseech you, right? We say I would ask you or urge you to do something, so they've tried to make it that way. But... The word behind that is a word called parakaleo, which means um, uh, to call to one side with the intention of helping or being helped. It's an other-oriented word. It's not, I beseech you because it's good for me. It's, I beseech you because it's good for you. The word walk there in the Bible, it means your daily conduct as you relate it to one's vocation or reason for being. That's why the King James uses the word vocation there. The word worthy is really interesting because it's the word axios. And it means it's a description of a balancing scale. What it means, that word worthy means, is that what's ever on this side of the scale has to equal that side of the scale. They can't be off. Okay? So he's saying to walk worthy. Think about that. What's that really, what's he trying to say with that, that that needs to be a balance? And last but not least, the word vocation, in, in some other translations you'll see the word calling, and the word called that you see at the end are actually the same root word. And it, it, it's, it means um, one's call to salvation, the gospel, and it's associated with what, what has been called to go right. Now, we might call that a vocation. In our culture, we tend to think of that more a vocation is, well, I chose this. But this is more, some, it means that someone took you and said, this is what I need you, to, you are going to go do. <clears throat> I just said, you know, just using those words, I mean, the word beseech sometimes, you know, um, it makes me ask myself, since it's another oriented word, who should we be beseeching? Who should we be beseeching with the good news of the gospel? Those folks we need to pull alongside of us. Let me show you a visual that I like a lot. Mark's ahead of you. Okay, it's the scale of worthiness, a walk of perfect, perfect harmony. If you look on the one side, our calling based on the gospel, right? It's talking about our relationship, our position, our obligations and expectations as children of God. That needs to be in balance. It can't be out, not to be out of balance with my walk. If you've noticed, you guys may not be able to read it, but under my calling it says vocation, 
and under my walk it says daily living. And my daily living is really, as a follower of Jesus, it's my submission, it's my willingness, it's my character, my attitudes, my decisions, my thoughts, my conduct, and my actions all should be consistent, equal with what the gospel has given and made me. My calling or vocation as a believer is defined by the grace of the gospel message received. That's something that's firm, it's established. We read in 2 Timothy 1.9, Who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works or what we want, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Philippians 3 14 says, I press forward, excuse me, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Jesus Christ. My walk, then, is to be a reflection of God in my daily life. That has to be consistent and equal with what God's expecting of me. Does my life reflect God's design and expectation as one called by God through his gospel? It should. But we know that that sometimes is a little bit shaky in all of us. I'm to live consistent with the original intent of being made in God's image. John Stott said it this way, we must cultivate unity in the church, purity in our personal lives, harmony in our homes, and stability in our combat with the powers of evil. What's nice about this passage we're looking at, though, is Paul does not leave us with this as some sort of abstract concept. He goes on in the next several verses explaining what this means in the life of the follower of Jesus. He details the character of one of those, of one whose walk is in balance with his gospel calling and his daily living. And we find that in the next two verses. Paul provides the characteristic of what is entailed by the vocation wherein ye are called. In these two verses, He shares the expectations and obligations of those who are believers, which in turn will lead to our fulfillment in our identity with Christ and in turn glorifies God. So let me read that with you. With lowliness and meekness and long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's look at those characteristics. Lowliness. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, uh, In a sense, I'll probably use these back and forth a little bit for humility. Um, I think people in general understand the word humility a little better than lowliness. But we'll talk about that because I like the word lowliness, and I'll show you why. Meekness. Some of the others use gentleness. I don't like that at all. I think meekness is the proper one. The next one is long-suffering, and in some of those, they will use the, uh, the word patience, and I think 
for purposes, I'll probably bounce between those because quite frankly, long-suffering, we understand patience a little better than that in general. And then forbearing with one another in love, and some of the newer translations say bearing. I think forbearing is a much better word. And endeavoring to keep the unity. Um, some of the others will say eager to maintain and uh, explain a little bit why that. But what's most important, back on that slide I had, is that that's a progression. It's not like I'll take a little of this, I'll take a little of that. It's that you have to start with lowliness or humility. And how many times in the Bible do we read about humility? It's throughout the Bible about we need to be humble. If you're humble, then you can, go, we have, you can develop meekness. If you have meekness, you can develop long-suffering. If you have long-suffering, you can be forbearing. And if you can do that, then you have the ability to make, ensure unity amongst the brothers and sisters. <clears throat> so let's look at humility, which is lowliness. And the word for humility um, is capinofrasuni. Uh, Maybe my friend uh, Roberto can pronounce that better than I can. Um, but what it really means is to think or to judge in lowness. It's actually two words, and it's meaning lowness person or a, a, a being. So the word actually means lowness being. Um, <clears throat> In fact, the word lowness, the word for lowness that's a part of that word, actually means at the bottom such that you cannot descend any lower than it. It would be as if the lowest part in the ocean. That's what that would describe. Okay? A little different perspective on humility, isn't it? It's that lowness, of, uh, lowest possible something can be. Um, it's only used one other time in the New Testament, and that's in Philippians 2.3. It says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Um, so it, it, it's not a word that is used, but it's interesting because John Wesley said, neither the Greeks or the Romans had a word for humility. They literally, it was a foreign concept. They abhorred the, the, even the idea of it because they thought everybody should be as prideful as possible. The term was actually created and coined by Christians. They created it to describe their position in Christ and their self-perception and pro approach to life relative to being a Christian. It's interesting, but in some other um, pagan writers, they actually picked this word up. And when it was translated, it was translated to mean pitiful weakness. So, when we think of lowliness or humility, it's, the most, it's at the heart of our Christian character. No virtue is more foreign to the world's way because the world actually exalts pride, not lowliness or humility. 
We all know some of the ways that the world exalts pride, right? Look out for number one, right? Do what you want if it feels good, right? Unfortunately, the church, not talking about new life, unfortunately, the church often takes this worldly perspective and its patterns and it takes it on a lot of pride. You know, Debbie and I came from a really large church. And I will tell you, there were people there that that was what was most important to them. It was a big, big church. They got the biggest organ on the whole East Coast. Right? Um, there were people that that was their thing. Right? That's not the intent of what we should be doing. As a, those are based on pride. And we need to quickly look at what God's view of pride is. The sin of pride, the first sin was pride. Every sin thereafter has been in some way the extension of pride. Lucifer, right? You can read this in Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 14. Read how many times he says, I will ascend, I will exalt, right? Adam and Eve, what did they do? They trusted themselves and their understanding above God. That's in Genesis 3, 6, and 7. Can we sometimes... Think of our humility as a sense of pride. I've said this to some of you, and, and I, I always get a kick out of reading uh, Henry Ironside because he has this, like, you know, old, I'll say, farmer's kind of wit, you know, old-time wit. And he tells this story. He says, a young minister rose in a Methodist concert and said, I'm against education. I don't believe in education. I read no book except the Bible. I don't profess to know anything about literature or anything of that kind. I'm just an ignorant man. But the Lord has taken me up and used me, and I'm not at all interested in schools, colleges, or education. He was going, right? <clears throat> An old preacher then arose and said, Do I understand that our dear young brother is proud of his ignorance? <laughs> <clears throat> Okay. In God's eyes, lowliness and humility is desired and pride is absorbed, absorbed, is abhorred. Let's take like a, just a couple quickly. Humility, superiority to relative to pride, you can find it in James 4, 6, 1 Peter 3, 5, Proverbs 11, 2, and Psalms 138, 6. God resists the proud but giveth grace to the humble. Be clothed with humility, right? Right. God resists the proud. When pride comes, comes shame with all the lowly. And with the lowly or humble is wisdom. Though the Lord is nigh, yet he hath respect unto the lowly, but the proud he knoweth afar off. Right? As believers, our only protection against pride and our only source of humility is a proper view of God. Pride is the sin of competing with God, and humility is the virtue of submitting to his supreme glory. That's a quote from John MacArthur again. And think about it. God's call is to humility or lowliness, and is a work that is only accomplished through lowliness and humility. Think of what we think about God's work, the cross. 
Is Christ humiliated? Our salvation, what did we need to be? We needed to be humble. And when we think about our service in Christ, we need to be humble. And whenever Christ is leading us, that's where we need to go. Humility is the foundation of our walk. And why is that? Humility shows us, allows us to see ourselves as we are because it shows us who we are before holy God. Without the humble realization of who we are relative to God and the realization of what He has done for us, we can never please God. A person cannot become a Christian without humility, without recognizing himself as a sinner and worthy only of God's just condemnation. Matthew 18, 3-4 And said, Verily I say unto you, except you be converted and become as what? Little children, ye shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. For whosoever, whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of God. Every Christian virtue has its root in humility. Just as pride is behind every conflict we have with other people, humility is behind every harmonious human relationship every spiritual success, and every joyous moment of fellowship with our Lord. Likewise, we can never develop or exhibit Christian, Christ, the characteristics of Christ-likeness without humility. Though we are made in the image of God, we often fail to reflect His glory without being grounded in humility. Humility is a foundational stone or that first step that we take in our walk with God. How do we achieve humility? Well, it begins with, our, with a self-awareness. Bernard of Clairvaux said, Humility begins with a proper self-awareness by which man becomes conscious of his own self-unworthiness. It, re it revolves our Christ-awareness that the only standard by which righteousness can be judged is Jesus Christ. It involves our God awareness, His divine perfection, holiness, limitless power, His all-knowing, and His authority. I think it's captured so well in Isaiah 6, verses 3 and 5, and I'm sure you guys can't read that because I can't read the one back there. But um, it says, And one cried unto another, and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Then I said, Woe is me! I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Every person comes before the Lord with nothing to commend him and everything to condemn him. Yet when he comes like the penitent tax collector, say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, God willingly and lovingly accepts him. <clears throat> Once we have developed humility, we have the necessary foundation to build the other characteristics, the other expectations, that will allow us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. 
already 8 o'clock. I'll try to speed it up a little bit. Meekness. <clears throat> Found eight times in the New Testament. The biblical meaning of meekness is different than the typical dictionary meaning that says timid or deficient of courage. The word there is the word called preotis. Hopefully I'm saying that correctly. It was used to describe the wild animals that were tamed. The picture is either of a horse with a bit or oxen that have you know, the, the yoke on them. They're controlled, but they're very powerful. Okay? It refers to that which is mild-spirited and self-controlled. Meekness, and in some of the newer translations use the word gentleness. I understand that maybe people don't use the word meek too often, but I don't like the fact that they use gentleness. Meekness is power under control. The meaning in the Bible is power under the control of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, to be meek means you have finished with yourself altogether. God leads one in every aspect of their life. Humility always produces meekness. Meekness is one of the surest signs that somebody has humility. You cannot possess meekness without humility, and you cannot possess meekness with pride. Would you describe yourself as meek? Let's look more closely at what those characteristics are. The characteristics of meekness is that you exhibit self-control at all times. You're not easily angered, Proverbs 16, 32, and I'll just give you those at point here at the time. Um, it says you're not easily angered, but also it also in the Bible tells us that we are to be angry, but we're to be angry when God's name or work is being maligned or in the presence of evil. It's a lack of anger when we, though, are harmed or are criticized. Meekness responds willingly to the word of God, no matter the requirements or the consequences. One of my favorite questions I used to ask people who wanted to be managers when I was back doing human resources was, tell me about a time where you made the right decision even though you knew it was going to cost you something. You'd be surprised how many people can't answer, couldn't answer that question or didn't want to answer that question. Right? But that's the sense where they do the right thing regardless of the consequences. As a peacemaker, has the proper attitude towards the unsaved. He longs for their salvation. He knows that they themselves were once lost, and they're always ready to make a defense of the gospel. Leads us to long-suffering, which today, you know, we would probably refer to that as patience. But I'm going to tell you why I like the word long-suffering. And I think we, without looking at the, the, the original word, sometimes we lose some deep meaning with these. The word for long-suffering is mekroth 
thermia. You heard of the thermia in there. And it literally means long-tempered. It's being placed in a hot oven for a long time is what it means. If you've worked in maintenance or in a you know, shop with anything metal or whatnot, there's a process called heat treating, right? We take something metal, we put it in that oven, and it heated up under pressure, and it makes it stronger, right? And that's the sense of what this word means by long-suffering, right? That we are willing to be put in that hot situation with the idea that it's going to make us stronger. Are we long-suffering? Do we endure negative circumstances and never give in to them? I like Ironside again. He, has, he, he says the word means to endure with unruffled temper. My wife will tell you that I a couple times had a ruffled temper this week, right? But that's the, the sense behind it. What are the characteristics of uh, long-suffering? Well, you're a patient saint accepts what other people do to them. Even when they really tried them beyond what they thought was their patience. Even those who question their motivation for serving God. When I came down here, I had people at the other church say, what are you doing? How are you doing? You're just going to the beach. You're, you should stay here. Right? A patient saint accepts God's plan for everything without questioning or grumbling. Good examples of that is Isaiah and Jeremiah. How are we measuring up so far? Move to the next one, forbearing with one another. And again, some of the newer translations use just bearing with one another because that's probably how we would speak to each other. But again, I like the word forbearing better in this case because there's some extra meaning to with it, okay? The meaning means tolerance to one in another in love. But there's something I think much better about the word forbearing versus the word that most people would say, well, you're bearing, right? You're bearing with one another in love. You're bearing with, with those folks. Forbearing has that Three letters in the front, four. And it means that you take the initiative beforehand. Before it's necessary, you have the wisdom to take the initiative to make sure you avoid a conflict. Okay? <clears throat> um. The word, though, the base of that word is very interesting, the bearing word. It's actually the same word that they use for the support under a bridge. Right? The support under the ridge, obviously, it holds its own weight, but it literally bears the weight of something else as it goes over it. And that's the sense of this word. You're bearing the weight of someone else. Right, as they interface with you and whatnot. And in fact, it infers that you're trying beforehand to do that to avoid a conflict with that. MacArthur described it this way. It's throwing a blanket over the sins of others, not to justify or excuse them, but to keep the sins from becoming more known than necessary. 
And he quoted 1 Peter 4.8 with that. But forbearing means they take abuse from others while continuing to love them. Proverbs 10.12. Forgives others of offenses against them. Colossians 3.13. And requires, this requires agape love. Willingly gives whether it receives or not. Our growth out of humility and meekness and longstanding are all required before we can really be forbearing. It's dependent upon those others before us. Which takes us to the last of those characteristics. And that's endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And this is the ultimate outcome of developing those prior, those former um, characteristics that I just shared with you. Um, the word endeavor means, is the word spadovezo, and it means to make haste. It infers zeal and diligence. It's an eagerness. It's interesting because endeavor conveys action, and I think that's appropriate. And yet, some of the other translations use the word eager to maintain, which means the attitude towards it. And I think both are an element of what Paul is talking about here. We have to have the attitude and then act on the fact of, maintain, of keeping the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. As long as self is at the center, as long as feelings, prestige, and rights are the chief concern of folks, there will never be unity. There will never be a bond of peace in the church. The church's responsibility through the lives of individual believers is to preserve unity by faithfully walking in a manner worthy of God's calling, manifesting Christ to the world by its oneness in him, that unity. Unity of the Spirit is the inner and universal unity of the Spirit by which every true believer is bound to every other true believer. It doesn't come from outside. It's not a program. It's not something we work on, but it's something that's created in the true believer by the Holy Spirit. It's shown through the qualities, though, that we just talked about. The lowliness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, right? patience and forbearing. The bond, and the interest in the word bond is the guarantee that preserves unity is the peace that, it, that the Holy Spirit provides for us. So how are we measuring up? You give yourself a grade on those expectations of being a, in the family of uh, God, how we measure it up? I have to admit, I, it, it's very convicting to me. I'm going to go real quick because it's 8.15 right now on the, on the last section here, which is sad because this is I could almost do a whole thing on this. But what's the cause, right, uh, behind that? And it's there is one body, and there's some really interesting things, so I want to make sure I share these with you. There's one body... And one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all, 
who is over all and through all and in all. Everything about our salvation, the church and the kingdom of God is based on unity. I want you to see something. There are what are called seven perfections in that verse. The word one there means the absolute highest. It means perfection. Right? It's saying there is one body, one Absolutely only one body, and it's perfect. There's one spirit, and that spirit, the Holy Spirit's perfect. Right? There's one hope, perfect. One Lord, one perfect faith, one baptism, one God. Right? Also very interesting in this verse, it's also a, um, a text verse per, it's a, to show that there is the Trinity. If you look in it, it talks specifically about the Holy Spirit, the Son, and the Father. Right? Verse 4, there's one Spirit. Verse 5, there's one Lord. That's talking about Jesus. And in verse 6, one God. And it talks about the Father there. <clears throat> it's a proof text for the Trinity here. Um, Let me go very quickly here, and I'll just do this, right? There's one body and one spirit. This is the unity of the Holy Spirit, just as you were called, okay? Um, there's one spirit who unifies the body of believers, right? And that spirit is placed in us, and, and we're a body. It serves as our guarantee. Uh, move it to the next one, Mark. I'm just going to hit some of the high points here. You know, the unity of the Son, there's one Lord, there's one faith, right? We know that there's one faith, there's one way, one, one truth, and one, way, one life in John 4, 6, right? There's one Lord, there's Jesus, there's no other, right? It talks about one baptism. I'll tell you, um, looking at this with some of the commentators, some talked about water baptism. I really believe it's the baptism when we're accepted by the Holy Spirit at that time. Um, with regards to it. The unity of the Father is in verse 6. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, right? Um, it, it's interesting. It, it is in uh, one version by King James, it read one way and another had the other. One said, and through all and in y'all. So I think maybe Paul was really Southern after all. But uh, um but uh, some of the others just said all in all, meaning he's in everything. He's in control of everything with regards to that. <clears throat> we are created, God loved, God saved, God father, God controlled, God sustained, God filled, and God blessed. We are one people under one sovereign, omnipotent, and omnipresent God. Right. Go to the next one, <clears throat> Mark. Everything that relates to our salvation, the church and the kingdom of God is based on the concept of unity. It dovetails together to support and hold the believer secure so he or she can walk in a manner to be more Christ-like and worthy of his calling. The oneness of every aspect of God's nature and plan 
is the basis for our commitment to live in unity. I'd like to cl- a little close with this verse here. It's, it, it's walking worthy of the gospel. You can see this in Philippians 1.27. Only let your conversations be as is becometh, and that's meaning to be worthy of, the gospel of Christ, and whether, a, and whether I come and see you or, or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, talking about your walk, that ye stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Again, in summary, let's just review what we're talking about, about being worthy of the gospel. It is being lowly. It is being meek. It's being long-suffering. It's bearing with one another. And it's doing everything we can to maintain the unity of the fellowship. The question you ask is, is the gospel, though, ever present with you? Or do we sometimes get distracted? What Paul's saying is, is we need to remember Christ-minded and keep in front of us at all times exactly what Christ has done for us, and that will lead us and guide us as how we should go forward. Put this slide up. Um, You guys, I'm sure, can't read that. Um, But I want to leave you two statements about living worthy of the gospel. One's by Jerry Bridges. It says, when you set yourself seriously to pursue holiness, you'll begin to realize what an awful sinner you are And if you are not firmly rooted in the gospel and have not learned to preach it to yourself every day, you will soon become discouraged and will slack off in your pursuit of holiness. Or, let me share this one. John Owen is considered the prince of Puritan theological uh, writings, wrote this. It is essential that we keep before us the gospel. The love of God revealed in his son, Jesus Christ, at all times. It's my hope that we all walk worthy of the vocation or that calling wherein we have been called. What is it that God has placed you here for? What is it that you are adhering to as far as the expectations in your walk with Christ. I did a little check with myself on this, and I have to be honest with you, I don't think I did real well, but I asked myself on all of those five criteria or characteristics, how am I doing? And I had to honestly tell myself, I have some areas I need to work on. And I'd ask you to kind of think about that yourself. Are there things that you need to work on relative to those expectations that God has for us as those who have been called into his family. Let me close in a word of prayer. Our God and Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord.